you would please to and turn them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In our studies of the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at the intensely practical nature of Jesus' teachings. When the laws of God are interpreted and expounded correctly, we find that they're relative to every generation. They're always in effect. What God says in his word is never passe, and God's word always governs us in the very best way that's good for society. And all of us, I think, we'd be so much better off in our nation, our world would be much better off if we realized that God is never wrong. You can't improve on what God says, and you can't take any social engineering and put that into place and try to fix the things in this world that have gone wrong. What we need to do is go back to the Bible and look to the infallible guide that God has given to govern us. Now, we've seen the practicality of Jesus' teachings in the first two examples that he gave the people concerning murder and adultery. And even though we might not think so, those, those two issues touch every person who's in this room today. Especially when we understand that God's law is not just talking about the external deeds that we do, but his law is concerned with what takes place in your heart. Murder, for instance, is defined by Christ as an attitude of the heart. And so when a person has anger or malice in their heart, Jesus says that that person is guilty of murder. He also says that about adultery. It's not just an external act that people do, but adultery is also an attitude of the heart, and it comes from the lust that's deep down within us. Now, both of those definitions of murder and adultery affect every person who's in this room today. There are some people who say that the Sermon on the Mount is not for Christians today, that this is something that God has given to rule in the millennial kingdom when Christ comes again. And so they say that this is not practical for the generation of Christians today. I strongly disagree with that. And I think that the Sermon on the Mount is something that we are to live by. It's useful for us, and it's helpful for us to understand that Jesus intends that these teachings would mold us and shape us in this very hour in which we hear them. Well, now we come to the next example that Jesus gives of the pharisaical misinterpretations of God's law. And this is concerning the issue of marriage and divorce. Is there anybody here who would say that we don't need to hear anything more about marriage and divorce? I mean, everybody thinks that marriage is fine today and we're really not having a problem with divorce? Well, we all know better than that, don't we? And so, for the next three or four weeks, we're going to talk about this. What, what does the Bible teach about marriage? What does it teach about divorce? And what does it teach about the role of men and women in marriages, or the husband and the wife? So those are the issues that we're going to take up in these next three or four sermons. Now, if you'd stand with me, we're going to read from God's Word in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 31. Matthew 5, verse 31. Jesus says, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we thank you for those who have come to hear your word. Lord, speak to us through the message that you've given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Let me remind you once again this morning about the overall problem that Jesus is addressing in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The key verse is back in verse number 20. This is where Jesus says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So the fundamental problem that Jesus is addressing is an issue of righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees were teaching it one way, and Jesus taught it another way. The religious leaders were stressing the keeping of commandments, and they said, that is the way that you can be saved. Well, the fallacy of that is when anyone tries to be saved or be righteous in God's eyes by doing religious works or keeping of laws, they always end up doing this. They always end up lowering God's standard of righteousness. God only has one standard of righteousness, and that is that you must be perfect as God is perfect. Now, all of us know that no matter how hard we try to do it, we're never going to reach that standard. The scribes and the Pharisees had invented all of their laws and commands, and they were actually substandard to God's law. And so they were depending upon the externals, while God's law is always given to reveal to us the true wickedness of the human heart. And so Jesus' goal and Jesus' intent of the law, or the intent of the law, I should say, were one and the same. And that was to reveal the imperfections of the heart and then to drive us to the righteousness that can only be found by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we are concerned with that overarching principle that we find in Matthew 5, verse number 20. We can't lose sight of verse number 20 because all of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount was given to expound that statement. And when we come to verses 31 and 32 in Matthew chapter 5, these are just, this, this is just one of, of six examples that Jesus gave that illustrated the difference between the correct interpretation of the law by Jesus and the incorrect interpretation given by the scribes and Pharisees. Now we see a pattern that's developed throughout this. Jesus starts out with a saying something like this, Ye have heard that it hath been said. And he's referring to what the scribes and the Pharisees said, or what the old rabbis, the old-time rabbis used to say. And that's what the people were teaching. But Jesus says, But I say unto you, and that is what Jesus is saying, by the authority of God's word, speaking as God himself. And so we don't want to lose sight of that overarching principle. But we also don't want to miss the details about the individual teaching. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about some details concerning marriage and divorce. And understanding correctly what God expects in a marriage helps us to understand a little bit better that previous example that Christ gave concerning adultery. Now, what I'm not going to do today, I'm not going to talk about the issue of divorce. That'll come up later. In a couple, three weeks, we're going to talk about divorce. But first thing that we need to do is to lay down some principles about how God views marriage. Because we can never understand the seriousness of divorce until we understand the sanctity of marriage. Now, let me begin with this today, the importance of love. The importance of love. Now, most people will read the Old Testament, as we did a moment ago, and they come to all the wrong conclusions. They believe that the Old Testament is all about the law. It's about the sternness and the strictness of God. And what God is only interested in is punishing us for breaking of his commandments. 
But then on the other hand, they read the New Testament and they see the love and the compassion of Jesus. And so they're convinced that what Jesus came to do was to change the Old Testament law, to give us something new, and he would replace that with different teachings. Well, that's clearly not Jesus' intent. We learned that in the 17th verse of Matthew 20, or Matthew 5 rather, when he said that he had not come to change what Moses and the prophets had said. Now, the Old Testament, or the New Testament, is about love. That is is true. And Jesus' intent for us is to understand the misinterpretations of the law that led the Pharisees to teach what they taught. And everything that Jesus teaches here in the Sermon on the Mount is founded in the infallible laws of God that we read in the Old Testament. That's not going to change. Now, the Old Testament is not about God building a relationship with Israel through the keeping of commandments. The commandments are an expression, really, of only one thing, and that is, do you love God enough to obey Him? Now, let's look at it this way. Love, first of all, connects us to God. Love connects us to God. Commandments are not the initial connection that we have with God. Now, if we look into the book of Deuteronomy, what we read just a moment ago, we see a key statement and one that's probably familiar to most of you. And this is in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. It says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, it's interesting that Deuteronomy, the word means second law. Deuteronomy is a restatement of God's law. And so these were uh, laws, or the restatement of the law that Moses gave just before Israel was about ready to enter into the promised land. Now, 40 years earlier, you you read Exodus chapter 20, and that's when uh, Moses and the people were standing out Mount Sinai, and God gave the law originally then. But now, this much time later, as they're ready to go into the promised land, Moses speaks to them again, and we notice something that he holds up as prominent. The very main thing, Moses put everything into this statement, love God, love Him supremely, put all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might into loving God. The key to Israel's success in Canaan would be grounded, first of all, in their love for God. Now, we need to understand, then, which of these two things came first. Was it the law of God, or was it the love of God? Love was first. Because for Israel to become the people of God, God had to love them and God had to choose them for his own. Listen to what Moses said in chapter 7 in Deuteronomy. He says, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, do you remember what preceded Israel's departure from Egypt? I wish we had time to go into it. But Israel's departure was preceded by that great, wonderful example of redemption. That was the Passover. And that was when the people of Israel were told to slay a lamb and to shed or to put the smear of the blood, I should say, on the doorpost of their houses. And that was a picture that one day Jesus Christ would come, he would give his life, he would die on the cross of Calvary, and his blood would be shed to cover our sins. Now, so redemption, the love of God, was before the giving of the law. You see, God wants the relationship first. 
The law wasn't given until Israel was out of Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. They were in the wilderness. And that's when God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. That's long after Israel was loved and chosen. And so then the law of God is an outgrowth of God's love. God loved Israel with no pre-existing conditions. He didn't say, you have to do this, you have to do that before I can love you. But God loved them with an unconditional love. And then Israel began to express their love for God by the obeying of commandments. Now listen to another scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says, And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I commanded this day for thy good. So you should be aware that the heart and the core of the law is love. The first four commandments that God gave were about our love for God, or God's love for us. And then the following six commandments are about our love for our fellow man. And so we have the expression of the love of God put into the obedience to commandments. Now, is that any different than what Jesus taught? Did Jesus set aside any law because of love? Well, we know that he didn't. What his teachings did was to reinforce that principle. When he was asked what are the most important commandments in all law, Jesus replied by giving those two love divisions, how we are to love God and how we are to love our fellow man. And all of you know that classic response that he gave. When he was asked what, are the, what is the greatest commandment, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now you recognize that. We just read it. Deuteronomy 6, verse number 5. Jesus is repeating what? The law. And then he says, And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So is there any doubt by hearing what Jesus said that the laws of God are not intended to be harsh and restrictive and God did not give us the law solely for his retribution? Jesus went even further with this explanation. He said in John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, keep my commandments. And then the Apostle John sticks to Jesus' interpretation in 1 John when he says, Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now right there we find the criteria for evidence of our faith in Christ. John goes on to explain in that chapter that if you love God or you say that you love God and you don't keep his commandments, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And so the equivalent of that, or that is the equivalent of saying, if you do not obey Christ, then you are really not a saved person. So examine your life. Where do you stand? Do you love Christ? Do you obey his commandments? If you don't, then scripture says that you're none of his. So we see then that love connects us to God. Do you love him enough to obey him? Now, we love him because he first loved us. We obey him because he loved us, and we recognize that, and we desire to show him that we love him. Again, God's love for us was unselfish. There was nothing that he looked for in us. It was his choice to love us freely and unquestionably. Now, next I want you to see that love connects us with each other. The first part of the law is about loving God. And we're connected to God through love. Then the second part 
of the commandments is this statement by Jesus. He said the first commandment now is to love God, and the second is a like commandment. And the second is likened to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So there is the intent of the second half of the law. Commandments 6 through 10 do what? They regulate our love for each other. Now very simply, this is how you do it. When Jesus speaks about murder, or when the law speaks about murder, the intent is don't kill because you're supposed to love your neighbor. And when he talks about adultery, when the law speaks of that, it says don't commit adultery, don't do it this way, because that's actually a perversion of love. That is defiling. And you can follow that all the way down to the end of that list. Don't steal, because stealing is selfish, and you don't steal from people that you love. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor, because if you love him, you're not going to tell lies about him. You're not going to gossip about him. And on it goes down to the end of of the list. So it's a regulation of how we are to love one another. And so when we come to this idea of marriage and divorce, the intent is husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands, and marriage comes down to that all one important principle. It's about how we are to love. There is no harshness in it, there is no hatred, and there is no divorce when we learn how to love. Now, divorce is the ultimate expression of love's opposite. Love's opposite is selfishness. Love's opposite is not hate, it's selfishness. And so we have to see that first, then, the importance of love. The commandments are built on love, and it's a perversion of the real teachings of Jesus To teach that commandments are a way that we can be saved or that we can justify ourselves by anything externally that we do. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. And in the process, they rooted out love that was taught in the Old Testament law. And so they had forgotten the Old Testament principle that God's view is that love is essential. Love undergirds all of our relationships. Now, secondly... We need to look at the institution of marriage. Now, we're only going to touch on this today. This is just an overview, and we're going to get into some different aspects of marriage in the following messages. So whose idea was marriage anyway? Now, some of you might ask that question. You get mad at your husband or your wife, and in the heat of the argument, you say, well, whose idea was this anyway? Well, all joking aside, marriage is God's idea. Jesus emphasized that in Matthew 19. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? So there we have marriage. And Jesus says, It came from the one who made them male and female. He's the one who joined them together. Now, the union that God sanctions is a holy union because it comes from Him. And so if marriage is God's institution, if it's God's idea, then who do you think has the right to govern it? Who is the one who makes the rules for marriage? Some people think, well, it's the marriage counselors. They're the ones who make the rules for marriage. Some people think, well, it's the latest author who puts out his self-help book or all the, the gurus about marriage. You go to the bookstore and you pick up, pick up that and that tells you how you're supposed to conduct your marriage and how, how to make things right. But the rules for marriage came from God. 
And if you want to know about marriage, the place that you have to go is to the Bible. It makes no sense to ignore the Scriptures when the one who gave us marriage is the one who rules it, and he gives it to us, the the laws for governing it, in his Word. So the laws for marriage and divorce come from God's Word. Everything that Jesus has to say about it is founded upon what? The unchangeable, infallible Word of God. Now, when you go to the books and you go to the marriage counselors, you'll always find that they think that marriage is undergirded by romantic love. That marriage is really a way to capture romance and make romance a legal institution. Now, interestingly, in in the Bible, that kind of love is never the real emphasis for marriage. Why did God give us marriage? Pay attention here. You might want to jot it out to the side here because it's going to be important in just a few minutes again. The best reason that we can express it is in the word union. Marriage is a union between two people. And in Scripture, it is so sacred that it is an indissoluble union. You can't break it without breaking something that is sanctified and holy. Now, that's expressed in Jesus' words, and they twain shall be one flesh. So marriage is two people becoming one. There's a union between the two. Now, we're going to talk about that union in three different categories. There are three different categories of the union that we have between husband and wife. The first one is the union of the body. There's a union of the body. And I don't put that first because it has to be first. And I don't put it first because it's subordinate to the other two types of union. But there is a union of the body. And I think we all recognize what that is. That, that's the sexual relationship. When Christ refers to two people becoming one flesh, one of the things that he has in mind is that sexual relationship. But it's not the only thing that God has in mind. And when people think that that part of it is all that God has in mind, then the marriage is headed for failure. Marriage is not about legalizing sex. Now, there is that aspect to it. It's marriage allows that intimate contact. It allows that kind of relationship. And I also might add that marriage is the only allowance for it that's found in the Word of God. There can't be any other union of this type outside of marriage. God's Word forbids it. And so the absence of marriage and the departure from this principle of one man for one woman is a perversion of the union. And that's what Jesus addresses when he talks about the issue of adultery in the previous verses. Now, the sexual union, we know, is a decisive factor because all of us know that without that union, a marriage, a marriage is never considered to be, to be consummated. Now, the Bible speaks of the importance of that part of the union. In Paul's teachings regarding it, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So Paul is there sanctioning that part of it. He says that this is something you need in your marriage, and so a healthy sex life is important to a marriage, and without that it could be doomed to failure. But the same is true if you try to build a marriage solely upon that relationship. If marriage is simply legalization of sex, and that's why people get married, then the marriage is not going to last. 
Eventually, the attractions, the, the outward attractions that people have for each other may begin to fade a little bit. The physical attractions are no longer the same. And so, uh, if sexual gratification is the only basis for marriage, that marriage is going to fail. And so that means that the other parts of this union are equally important. And we need to speak about those as well. So there's a union of the body. Then secondly, there's a union of the soul. The soul is the intellectual, it's the emotional part of the union. There have to be common interests. There has to be a, a common outlook. Now, aside from those who think that, well, we got married because I just really needed to satisfy my sexual urges, my animal instinct, and that's the reason I got married. Aside from that, uh, the real union of the soul is the first attraction that two people have for one another. That's the thing that attracts you to them. You're drawn to them for their companionship. You want to share with them the interest that you have, or you have common interest. And when there are no common interests... And when the marriage is driven by other factors, then the result will be a struggle between these two people constantly trying to force the other person into a mold that fits their ideal. And so if you have a man or a woman that have a fairy tale idea of marriage or have a Hollywood vision of marriage, then marriage becomes a battle of the wills rather than a union of the soul. Now by the grace of God, that can be overcome. God can allow you to love that person and to adjust that person, even though they may not fit your perfect ideal of what you thought a mate should be, as long as you're looking at the godly characteristics that are in that person. Now, a wife or a husband must strive for godliness in a marriage. And a marriage that is entered into without the focus of godliness is a marriage that will be headed for divorce right out of the gate. Now, that necessarily leads us to the third part of the union, which is a union of spirit. There must be godliness in a marriage, and without godliness, you can't have a union of spirit. Now, understand that I'm not talking about here uh, some kind of Eastern mystical type of union, spiritual union. There's only one intended spiritual union in a marriage, and that is the spirit of Christ. And so that means... That the highest ideals of marriage cannot be put into play unless the two people are Christians. God's intention for marriage cannot be fulfilled by unbelievers. Now, if you're a Christian, what that means is that you are not to marry an unbeliever. Christ has no basis in the Sermon on the Mount to deal with the issue of marriage and divorce and what's pleasing to God and what's righteous in God's eyes without assuming that the two people that are to be married are believers. You see, if righteousness is a matter of the heart, which it is, the heart must be right. And the only way that the heart can be right is it has to be purified by faith in Jesus Christ. The key beatitude, if you remember when we are studying that, the key beatitude is in Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Salvation changes a person. When you have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, when you have been regenerated, you've been born again, the Bible says that you are a new creation in Christ. And so it's impossible for a born-again believer to be knit body, soul, and spirit to an unbeliever. And that's because they're not alike. Spirituality is not an appendage for a Christian. When you get saved, that permeates every fiber of your being. 
And so if you choose to marry an unbeliever, that is a denial of the soul and the spirit union in a marriage. And so what you have then is a one-part marriage. It's a marriage that's running on the body only. And one-part marriages are not God's ideal. And rarely do they ever be happy marriages. Now, how do we know that this thing is wrong? Well, I mean, marrying an unbeliever. There are plenty of examples that we could go to. We see them around us. But I've already said that the Word of God defines this for us. We can go to the Word of God and we can find the very principles. Now, all of you are familiar with 2 Corinthians 6.14, where it says that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's a very clear scripture. And you might jot down the reference and read it later. 2 Corinthians 6, verse number 14. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But we also have what I think is a very interesting biblical example. A good case in point is King Solomon, who recognized that he had married wrongly. Now, we know that King Solomon married very wrongly because he had 700 wives. But there's one incident with one particular wife where Solomon knew the evil of his union. For a political alliance, Solomon decided to marry the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, we know that in the Bible, Egypt represents bondage. It represents sin. And the Egyptians were never believers in Jehovah God. Some people believe that, well, Pharaoh's daughter was a Jewish proselyte, that she was converted to the worship of Jehovah God before the marriage. But there seems to be a scripture here that's teaching otherwise. In Second Chronicles, we read this, And Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David under the house that he had built for her. For he said... My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy, whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. Now, do you see the indication there? Solomon built a separate house for his wife because he would not bring her into the holy places of God. And the reason that he didn't was because she was not holy. And so Solomon knew there is a problem with this marriage. This marriage is not one that's in the will of God. And there are many Christians, many believers, who will marry unbelievers in the hopes that they're going to win them to the Lord. Their idea is that they're going to elevate that other person, they're going to help them out spiritually, and everything's going to turn out rosy and it's going to be well. Now, praise God and His mercy and His grace. Sometimes He does save that other person. But many, many times it doesn't happen. And so you have an unequal marriage, and misery is the result. Now, the problem there is that you have no union of soul and spirit. And so the marriage is running on the body only. There are no common interests of soul with soul. That doesn't exist between a Christian and a non-Christian, especially when you're talking about godly interests. And definitely, there is no union of spirit with spirit because the Bible teaches us that righteousness cannot coexist with unrighteousness. And it's sad that there are so many pastors and churches that will marry believers to unbelievers and will marry unbelievers with unbelievers. Recently, I had a lady wrote to me, and she asked me if I would marry her and her fiancé. Now, besides the issues that I have with marrying people that are non-church members, I, I felt like that I needed to talk to them about their relationship with the Lord. And so I explained that a proper marriage is only between two believers. And then I went a step further than that. I said that those two believers must be serving the Lord faithfully in the church. Well, I received a very curt reply. 
And this person said that asking such questions are unfair judgment on her spirituality. And then my reply to that was, God's already made the judgment. I'm not making the judgment. This is what God's Word says. And as a pastor of a New Testament church, I can't do anything other than what the Lord commands. Now, that's God's view of marriage. You can't make holy matrimony if, not, if the two that are going to be married could not come into the holy presence of God. Now, Solomon was wise enough to know that, and we ought to be wise enough to follow the example. Now, thirdly then, to see the sanctity of marriage and to see how God views it, we must look at the illustration of the church. The Bible spells out love. We find that in both the Old and the New Testament. And the Bible gives us the highest examples of love. One is the physical example, and that's between two redeemed people of God. The other one is the spiritual example, and that's about Christ's love for his church. Now, Paul puts those two ideas in juxtaposition, especially in the letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. Now, I want you to turn there, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And next week, we're going to expand on this reading, and we're going to talk about husbands and wives in a marriage relationship. That's in the next couple of weeks. But I want us to read this, Ephesians five twenty-two through 33, because this shows us this illustration of the church. Paul writes in verse number 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh." This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, I want to take you back to the Garden of Eden for just a moment and the purpose that God gave marriage. What did God have in mind when he brought Adam and Eve together? Some people think that it was for procreation. God cannot populate the world without marriage. But anybody who's looked at the statistics of how many children are born out of wedlock, you know that you don't have to have marriage for procreation. Then some would say, well, marriage was put in place for a societal norm. It's a regulation so that children that are born will be, in most cases, raised by two parents in a loving, nurturing environment. And so thereby we have an ordered society and we have good discipline. And certainly that is a byproduct of marriage. But the real reason that God gave us marriage is because God can see the big picture. He sees what he intended from the very beginning in time and eternity. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. 
And the Bible teaches that when Adam sinned against God, he fell. And then all people became sinners because they have received that fallen nature. And every one of us desires to follow the dictates of that nature. Now, we've been speaking about God's law and how that righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, of all those external commands. But the problem is we have this nature, and we can't live to the standard because the standard is too high for us. We, we can never make ourselves righteous because we simply cannot change our heart. Well, God was prepared for all of that. God knew that this would happen. And so when Adam fell, he already had a covenant in place. And this covenant was between the Father and the Son before anything was ever created. And the covenant said that Jesus would come to this earth and he would give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. What Jesus would do is to right the wrong. And God would accept that sacrifice in the place of punishing us for sin. Now the revelation of that covenant is found in Genesis 3.15. And that's where it tells us that the seed of the woman would crush The seed of the woman is Christ, and he would crush the head of that old serpent called the devil. Christ would redeem his people from the curse of sin, and listen to me. He would redeem his people from the curse of sin, and he would unify them. There would be a union between them and him. They would become a part of his body, and the New Testament calls that body the church. And so as two people are joined together as one, and they become one body. So Christ and his people become one with him through his church. A church relationship with Jesus Christ is different than any other kind of relationship that you can have with him. And why is that? Because the Bible calls the church his body. The church is the body of Christ, and we have to be unified to him. We come into a union with him. The Bible says that The church is the bride of Christ. Now, that's the last statement on your listening sheet today. The church is the bride of Christ. So why did God give us marriage? Well, it was to give us the highest expression of his love. Human love's highest expression is found in marriage, and divine love's highest expression is found in Christ's love for his church. Now, you see, that's how God views marriage. Do you see why this is so sacred? I mean, do you see why marriages are never to be broken? It's because it ruins the symbol. It ruins the picture. God wants you to stay in your marriage because Christ will never sever his relationship with the church. Now, on an individual level, uh, when you trust in Christ, the Bible says he's never going to leave you or forsake you. So the question for you today is, have you trusted Christ? Have you become then a part of his church. You see, the best relationships, the best marriage relationships are built upon this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ as our Savior. And all of that goes back to what I was teaching in the very beginning. What undergirds it all is the theme of love that we find in the laws of God. God says to love him and to love your fellow man. Love undergirds it all. And if we love God supremely, then we will, le- we will love correctly in our marriages. And then it will be, just like Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the picture. 
And that's why marriage is such a holy thing in the eyes of God because it represents this relationship that Christ has with his own church. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him for salvation? Have you become a part of his church? That's the way that you're unified with his body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to talk about your word today. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ who loves us, who loved us unconditionally and came into this world to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, I pray that we might look at that great example of love and see that this is the very thing that we are to have in our marriages. As Paul said, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's how we are as husbands to love our wives and then in turn, wives return that love. Lord, we just ask you to strengthen our church, strengthen it through our marriages, strengthen it through our families. And Lord, we'll just give you the praise for that as you speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.